probably tell that I don't look like a Wilson Wang. Um, but he is um, teaching at another church this morning, and so I have the opportunity to teach here. And um, my husband and I have been around Renew since we started. Oh, I should have found this out. When did we start? Four years ago? Five years ago? Almost five. Okay. Four, okay, yeah. So I meant to find that fact out before I got up here. Um, but we've been here since the beginning. It's been fun to watch it grow and change over that time. And over that time, if you've been around a little while, you may have heard Wilson describe Renew's age and compare it to like a, a child and their development. So like when we were one, he would say, we're one years old, like we're learning to talk and walk, we're developing. And so I was actually thinking about that. Um, it's almost May. I don't know if you guys feel like I did that April just like, where did April go? I don't know. But May is coming, and May is my husband and I's anniversary. And we're celebrating 14 years this May. And thank you. Um, and so, you know, with that, I was thinking, so 14 years, if our marriage was like a kid, who is 14 years old, like, babe, we're, like, I think almost through the most awkward years, potentially, is what I was taking away from that. Although maybe some of you guys are just, like, hitting your awkward years right now. I'm not totally sure. But uh, for me, it was a relief to get to high school. Junior high was brutal. If you want to hear some great stories, talk to me later about junior high. Um, but, you know, having our anniversary come up, it's had me think about some memories from our early years of marriage or from dating. And um, one really vivid memory I have from um, our very early marriage, we were married, I think, a month at this point. Every other summer, we actually go to Colorado for a really big ministry conference um, with a ministry that we're involved in. And big meaning like 20,000 staff probably gathered from all over the nation and even all over the world every other summer for this one-week conference. And so it's kind of like a whole city, it feels like. And the opening day of this conference, they put on a fair that really feels like a city fair. And so Jonathan and I had just been married. This is my first big staff conference I'm going to. And there's a lot of meeting and greeting and seeing friends and we're in line for um, one of the rides, and uh, we strike up conversation with the guy in front of us in line and, you know, exchange where we're from, and he finds out that we're newlyweds, and he says, um, oh, do you guys want to have kids? And like, yeah, you know, eventually we'd love to have kids. And he was just saying, like, you've got to have kids. Like, ki kids are the biggest blessing. I love being a dad. And he, he just like lit up. He was just beaming with pride and joy. And he just talked about how, um, how much he enjoys his son, how much it's changed his life to be a dad, and like just couldn't recommend it enough. Like you really have got to do this. It'll change your life. It'll be the biggest blessing in your life. So it was really fun to talk to him. And, you know, it wasn't until we were like leaving, maybe heading to the next ride, that I caught a glimpse of his son in the stroller. And just as we were leaving and I caught that glimpse, I noticed that his son had Down syndrome. And it just kind of blew my mind. Like, that was not what I was picturing from this dad that was 
beaming with joy about how you have got to have kids. This is the best gift ever. It's changed my life. It is so much fun to be a dad. You know, I had this, this other picture in my mind of whatever this best and brightest and picture-perfect family would look like. You know, it's been almost 14 years since that encounter, and I have like a really vivid memory of that time. And I think it was because it was like, like a holy moment. I think in that moment, God was revealing to me part of his character, part of what he loves, part of what makes him light up and beam, is that he's not necessarily drawn in affection toward just what is biggest and best and brightest, like what the world would shower its affection and praise on, but that his heart is really drawn to the weak and the needy and the wandering. And you know, that picture has come back so many times to me and God's used it so many times to remind me of where his affection and where his eyes and where his beaming pride and love and affection are drawn. You know, I bring up that story because as I was studying the passage that we're gonna talk about today, uh, I think that the picture is very similar. And so we're going to be walking through Matthew 18 today. We'll have the passage on the screen. And, um, and before we do that, um, I'd love to, to pray for us and just that our hearts would be ready to receive what God wants to teach us. God, I do pray for us as we read your word together and as we ask you, what does this mean for us today? What picture, what lesson what heart shift might you want to do in us today? So I just pray that you make our hearts tender to that, that we would have ears that are sensitive to hear your word, um, and that I would allow you to speak well through me. In Jesus' name, amen. So if you've been around very long, you know that we've been going through the book of Matthew. Matthew is one of the gospels, and what I love about the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, those four books in the Bible, is it's following Jesus' life and ministry. And so when you're encountering the Gospels and when you're seeing pictures of Jesus teaching his disciples, healing people, correcting even the religious elite, engaging with the social outcasts and people are broken, we're supposed to grab something from those pictures. In Colossians 1, Paul tells us that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, that the fullness of God is pleased to dwell in him. So when we see pictures of Jesus, he is revealing to us what an invisible God is like. How much of us want to know what God is like? What does he care about? What does he say? How would he engage with this world? And so as we see pictures of Jesus here, we can say we are getting a picture of the invisible God, that we get glimpses of God's character and God's heart. And so we've been seeing that over and over as we've been studying the book of Matthew. And in Matthew 18 so far, the passage that we're still in, um, Chrissy kicked us off a few weeks ago as the disciples were kind of posturing against each other and asking Jesus, who's greatest in your kingdom? And then he draws a child in front of them and he says, you need to be like a child in order to be great in my kingdom. Then Wilson took that a little bit further and, and talked about his, uh, his greater affection and stuff for these kids and saying, any one of you that would threaten or cause one of these to sin or stumble, that's pretty much the worst thing that you can do. He's, he's really drilling in his affection for, for these children. And, um, and in the passage today, we're continuing in that same vein, and it goes even a little bit further. So let's read together. It starts in verse 10. <clears throat> 
Jesus is speaking to his disciples. He says, See that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I tell you, their angels in heaven always see the face of my Father in heaven. What do you think? If a man owns a hundred sheep and one of them wanders away, will he not leave the ninety-nine on the hills and go to look for the one that wandered off? And if he finds it, truly I tell you, he is happier about that one sheep than about the ninety-nine that did not wander off. In the same way, your Father in heaven is not willing that any of these little ones should perish. So we know Jesus is talking to his disciples here, and he's revealing to them what God's heart is like. And he's doing that through the following. So if I were to just kind of like summarize these four verses, he's saying to his disciples, don't despise these little ones. And here's why. Because let me tell you a story about what God's heart is like. It's like this man who has sheep, and he leaves 99 of them to find this lost one. And when he finds the lost one, he has great joy. And then he ends it by saying, that story I just told, that's about God's heart. And he doesn't want anyone to perish. And so to understand what this is really meaning to us today, we'll break it up a little bit and ask first, like, who is he talking about when he says the little ones? You know, earlier I talked about he had drawn a child before them. And earlier in this chapter, he keeps referring to children. But now he's just saying little ones in general. So I think, you know, the most obvious and first interpretation that we would make of who little ones are are probably actual little people, children. But one implication of naming children was highlighting their neediness and their seeming lack of value. They didn't really add worth or productivity or anything. So with that same intention in mind, we can include here all of those not favorably looked upon or naturally valued or esteemed in their culture. So for that time, it was certainly children, the weak, ill, infirmed, the social outcasts, the irreligious, the sinner. But who are the little ones in our culture today? I think we would ask the same question. Who does our culture reject or demean or ignore? Certainly the needy. I think maybe needy defined in a different way sometimes. You know, the person who is the drainer, uh, sometimes a social outcast, um, always needy, emotionally draining. I think often the annoying uh, you ever find yourself stuck in a conversation with someone who's like only talking about themselves and they won't stop and kind of over their shoulder you can see the people you actually want to be talking to and you're like, how much time till I can go talk to them? I don't know if I'm the only heartless one in the room. Does anyone feel like they've been in conversations like that before? And I think we all have or we can all picture someone or some people or some group of people that are kind of the little ones that are just easier to ignore or demean or belittle or reject. But my guess is at one time we have all felt like the little one, a weak one, a wandering one, one with all the questions and none of the answers, the one left out or the one rejected or ignored, maybe feeling not chosen, not lovely. So this passage talks about them and likely about you and me. So how does God feel about them? How does God feel about the little ones? Well, Jesus is giving uh, attention, great attention, in showing the affection God has toward the little ones through the story of this one lost sheep. 
And so I think sometimes when we read stuff like this, the question or argument can come up about like, what about the 99? And I think to answer that, the story is not to show that he doesn't care about the 99. But he's highlighting his care for the one because as he's talking to his disciples, everyone and everything in their culture is already affirming and caring for the strong and those that are staying together and the group. So he's saying your world and your culture and even your religion are built with affirming eyes over here with the 99. But my kingdom is built with affirming eyes on this one. And you can be sure that gets their attention. Jesus has this habit of taking what they believe and kind of turning it on their head. And you know, when I thought about this definition and why he told the story this way, it made me think of the Black Lives Matter movement. You know, as the movement grew and the hashtag kind of took hold and gained popularity and was all over Twitter and all over the headlines, there was this counter argument that rose up that would say, well, don't all lives matter? From what I understand though, the heart of this movement, of the Black Lives Matter movement, was not saying that all lives don't matter, that police lives don't matter, that white lives don't matter. Rather, the Black Lives Matter movement was saying that it was affirming a truth that our modern day social structures and systems and news headlines seem to deny. The fact that black lives mattered when the world around them seemed to say the opposite. And so I believe that Jesus is in effect doing the same thing here, drawing special affection and attention to a people and to this wandering one elevating the dignity of lives that didn't seem to matter to the people that claimed to follow his ways. So do all 100 sheep matter? Yes, but that's not the question here. We want to keep our attention where Jesus seems to be pointing our focus. And remember, Jesus is telling us what God's heart is like. That's all about, that's all what his um, display of his character is like is revealing God's heart. And so when I look at this passage, I think that there's at least three things that we can see are true about God's character. And it's three points, and they all start with P, and it's all very sermony, and I tried to avoid it, but it just had to be there. Um, so it's that God is in passionate and personal pursuit of his kids that are wandering, and by extension, all of us. So that God is in passionate and personal pursuit of his kids that are wandering, and by extension, all of this. <clears throat> so first, that God is passionate. Do you believe this? Do you believe that God is passionate in his love for you? Because we think of passion, we think crazy, overwhelming, expressive love. You know, I think the reason maybe we don't believe this is we have all these other ideas in our head. One, thinking, how can God feel overwhelming love for me when I feel nothing close to that toward him? Or maybe you're thinking, all my other relationships in my life with my family, with a boyfriend, girlfriend, with my spouse, with my children, they often look reciprocal. So when I move toward them, they move toward me in affection. But if I withdraw, they withdraw. So how can God be passionate in his love for me when I am lukewarm and inconsistent in my love for him at best? So do you believe that if you were apathetic in your worship of him this morning, 
that he was still passionate in his love for you. That if you doubt his love, that his love does not falter. That when you can't see him or feel him, that his eyes are fixed on affection for you. And I think that this passage leaves no room for question that he loves his little ones and by extension all of us. You know, maybe if the story went a little different with the sheep, maybe if it was the strongest sheep or the biggest group of sheep that wandered off, we would think it's totally common sense that that man would go and run after it. But this sheep is likely just the runt. Do they call little sheep runts? I don't know. Just the lost and wandering one. It's needy, adding no apparent value to the flock. So why would he leave the 99 to go after the one? Because of crazy love. You know, this passage shows us, and the whole parable is almost told as a warning to anyone who might endanger the spiritual or otherwise health of these little ones, of his kids. He says, don't despise them, I love them. And you know, Wilson gave a great picture of this two weeks ago. I don't know if this story stood out to you guys, but do you guys remember when he was talking about like beating up toddlers? <laughs> Anyone? Well, if you weren't here, that might be concerning. Um, but it was all within great context. So he talked about his son, Liam, who's two years old in daycare. And he would go in there, and if he saw like a kid picking on his son, Liam, like he would just kind of be like filled with rage to the point where he'd be like, I am ready to go beat up like any two-year-old that gets in my son's way, you know? And then he kind of like went off on that a little while and <laughs> got excited. And, you know, so that stood out to me. But then I was also thinking like, okay, if there's anyone that is hitting and kicking Liam, it is most likely my son, Lincoln. And so, <laughs> should I be concerned? <laughs> so they're both back there right now. You can pray for them. <laughs> But the other thing that stood out to me is just that protective, like fiercely protective nature. Like I will do anything for you and if anyone gets in your way. And that is passion. That is overwhelming, crazy, expressive love. So we know that God is protective in his passion for us. That he rejoices over the lost sheep as God rejoices over our well-being. And I love taking note that he cares because he's chosen to. You know, he doesn't care and set his affection because it's a good little sheep. And this is consistently God's character from the very beginning, that he is in passionate personal pursuit of us in our weak and wandering state, not just when we're at our best and brightest. On this slide, there's um, a verse from Deuteronomy, so it's way earlier in the Bible two verses, Deuteronomy 7, 6, and 7, and it says this, the Lord your God has chosen you out of all the peoples on the face of the earth to be his people, his treasured possession. The Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you are more numerous than other peoples, for you are the fewest of all peoples. So he's talking here about Israel, his chosen nation, that he chose to display his love and his fierce protection and his pursuit by ma making covenant relation with these people. Not because they were great and impressive, but they were the fewest. He's always been rooting for the underdog. So let me tell you, do you feel less than or needy or broken or wandering? He has chosen and he has set his affection 
on you. Jesus gives us a glimpse of God's character, and it's that he sees and he notices the lost one. His affection is fixed, and his joy is overwhelmed at being reunited in relationship with his lost ones. So God's passionate, and he's in passionate and personal pursuit of his kids that are wandering. So I don't know about you, but I, I find it hard sometimes to hold intention that I know that God is big and grand and sovereign and creator of all things and a personal God at the same time. I know that God loves the world. It was the first Bible verse I memorized, and my motive was to get a donut hole when I was, I think, in second grade. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. But he's not just about every and all, although he is, but he is about the each and the one. He doesn't just love us from his heavenly throne. He came to earth and put skin on and got up close and personal with his creation, suffering and wanting and feeling what we feel. He's not far off. He is personal. And he doesn't just love the world. He doesn't just love us. He loves me and he loves you. Do you believe this? Do you believe that he loves you and knows you personally? Even as I say that, I think like, yes, uh uh-huh. Yes, we know this. We've heard this. But do you believe this? Do you really know this? You know, I I say that because I know often we doubt this. But in this passage, there's a reason I believe that Jesus highlights one individual sheep among a hundred. Not just some or this one group of sheep, but this one individual little lost sheep. It is being united with this one that brings him great joy, more than standing over the 99. Verse 14, the last one in that passage, says that it is not the will of the Father that even one should perish. And on the next slide, we have the same passage we read with all of the words one highlighted. There's so much attention here on the one sheep he's really trying to get a point across. You know, I would think 99 out of 100 is pretty good. But God's attention is on the lost and wandering, and it's not good enough. While the world might have eyes that have magnetic pull toward what is greatest and largest and most impressive, God's eyes are magnetically pulled toward the weak and the wandering one. So church, wandering ones and weak ones and little ones, it is not my Father in heaven's will that any of you should be lost or looked over. He sees you. He knows you. He is crazy in love with you. And here's how he shows it. It's the final P. So that he's in passionate and personal pursuit of his kids that are wandering, and by extension, all of us. So pursuit. Our God is a pursuer of our souls. We've heard it said that he is seeking to save that which is lost. He wants to reclaim what is his. Do you believe this? Do you believe that he has put so much value on you personally that he is willing to go to great lengths to pursue you? Or do you think that maybe God is like a stern boss or an angry, impatient parent with like arms folded and foot tapping, just like waiting for you to get to act together or waiting for you to get in line? That's not the picture that Jesus paints to his disciples here. 
the picture is of this man or this shepherd who leaves the 99 in earnest search for the one. And um, if any of you have a memory of being a lost kid, or um, even more so if you have a memory of losing your kid, we get a little glimpse of what this is like. So I lost Lucy once in a store. Uh, World Market in Brea. She likes playing with this little like shelf of toys that's open for kids to play with. And she was there, and then she wasn't. And so usually I'm like to a fault overly concerned with what people think about me and like keeping my act together. Not, not that day. I turned into a mad woman. And I was like, any person that I ran into, like, have you seen my daughter? She's got blonde hair. She's about this big. Like, I jolt to the front of the store. And it's like, don't let anyone leave. I can't find my daughter. You know, like, help me find her. And so I'm, like, running around. Lucy ends up just being on, like, the other side of the shelf. Um, so all was well. But, you know, I think about that. And I think, like, the lengths that I would have gone to to find Lucy and and how much more God, who is the definition of love, what he would do out of passionate and personal pursuit of one of us that is wandering. So the picture of God that Jesus paints is this. When relationship with God is broken, when we are lost and wandering away from our shepherd, God has put the responsibility on himself to reunite and restore. Not just waiting for us to get our act together and get back in line. He has put the initiating and the responsibility on himself. And he has gone to great lengths to demonstrate his loving pursuit of us. On this slide is Romans 5, 8. And it's a short verse, but it says this, that God shows his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Not when we got our act together, not when we came back perfectly to him, but that while we were still sinners, that he initiated rescue of us. So for the lost and the wandering and the weak, I think your presence here even is evidence of his pursuit of you. He will rejoice at your return. He is not crossed arms, tapping foot, and patiently waiting for your return. He's actually eagerly desiring it, welcoming it, pursuing and seeking it, initiating it. You know, God seeks to save that which is lost, and we all once were and still are, apart from his saving work. So that is the picture of passionate and personal pursuit of God to us. Do you believe it? I keep asking you this, do you believe it? Because I know it's hard to believe. There are broken pieces and dark hours of our stories that make us really question his personal and pursuing love of us. You know, update of the story from 14 years ago, Jonathan and I did want to have kids, didn't end up having kids, as many of you know. But our journey to parenthood um, has held some of the darkest hours and broken pieces of our story to date. Um, you know, I, one of the most vivid memories I have of really questioning this love for me is I remember we were living in Brea in our apartment, and I remember at the time sitting on my couch with my hand on my stomach and I was weeping as I was miscarrying a baby that we had been praying for for a long time. 
you know, we had been trying for over a year and finally I was pregnant, but um, the blood work came back and the numbers were not looking good. And even though the numbers and the cramping and the bleeding confirmed that we were losing this baby, I remember even in that moment praying like, God, you can do anything, but can you heal this baby? And I thought, you know, in that moment, I know he's powerful. I know he can do whatever he wants. But at the same time, I was like, there's a million babies dying in the world. Like, does he even know? Like, does he even care about this one? You know, can he even show up? Does he, does he even care about me in this moment? So tell me, where is a passionate and pursuing and personal God at that point in my story? And I tell you this story and I ask you this because that is real life outside these doors. Because it is one thing to believe and affirm those things right here in this moment, but it's a whole other when we go back into the mess that's waiting for us because we all have those pieces waiting for us back at home. But do you know the gift of our darkest hours and our broken moments is they often lead us to our understanding that we are lost and broken and wandering and it's the wandering one that gets pursued and rescued. So, you know, God did not heal my baby. That is not how he showed up in my story at that point. But he did meet me faithfully in my brokenness. You know, we um, had a lot of family and friends that, um, that encouraged us and prayed for us and offered us words of encouragement at that time. But the only picture that really comforted me at that time was a picture of God beside me on that couch, weeping and broken with me. Not because his hands are tied, but because this broken world is going to rob a lot of things from his kids that break his heart. But he sees us, he will find us, and he will be with us. And there is the promise that he will restore, restore us to perfect joy in heaven with him eventually. So I would offer to you, I don't know what your broken pieces are and what your darkest hours are, but that maybe God is initiating coming after you as a wandering one. Maybe he's coming into your life and showing up as a loving and pursuing God, not by coming to solve your problems, but it's being present with you in that, in that place with the promise of a future where we're fully restored. So, you know, this whole time, I've been really talking to people in the room that resonate with the one lost wandering sheep. But let me talk for a brief moment about those that are feeling like the 99. Maybe for the Christians here that feel like safely tucked into the white fluffy herd, the disciples that are following that know and affirm these things, You know what God has done for me since the heartache of losing that baby? He has helped me see and engage with a wandering and lost and broken world and people like I just hadn't before. You know, Jonathan and I had already started our adoption journey at that point of our story, but I don't think we would have been prepared for the broken world we were about to enter if I hadn't seen God already enter into a really messy part of mine. He was giving me an understanding into my own brokenness and his pursuit and presence there. You know, when Jesus is talking to the disciples in the passage, 
he is saying, don't ignore and despise these little ones. But I don't think it just stops with the warning. I think it goes on to invitation, where he's extending and modeling for them God's heart for them to emulate. So Christian or disciple or one of the 99, does our life say the same as this passage? That it is not our will that even one should lost or wander or perish. That we have a passionate and personal and pursuing love for those that are lost and wandering. And I think we could just ask ourselves some of these questions. Do I find myself hiding in the comfort or the flock of friends or cool kids with magnetic eyes toward the biggest and best and brightest? Or do I hang near the fringe and see who might be in danger of being lost? Who's not here? Who's wandering? You know, one trick, one hack from disciple to another on how to keep a heart like his is to stay in touch with your own lostness and brokenness and wandering ways. And we're fooling ourselves if we don't resonate with the lost sheep here, if we don't recognize our own wandering souls. You know, one of my favorite hymns says it best, I think, if you're familiar with the hymn, Come Thou Fount, I think it's the second or third verse, um, but it says, let thy goodness, like a fetter, which is like something that tethers something to another, so let thy goodness, like a fetter, bind my wandering heart to thee. I'm prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love, so here's my heart, take and seal it, seal it for thy courts above. And Renew, I have to say that as a church, yes, I see you looking like this passage, pulled toward the fringe, eyes magnetically affirming the weak and wandering one, and it encourages my heart. And one of the reasons, Jonathan, I love to lead and to stay and to learn here. Sometimes I want to put that church identity as the umbrella of my own identity. But I think a lot of these questions are meant to reflect back on us personally and where we have our eyes fixed. So I'd love to pray for us as we close. And um, I don't know where this story landed on you. If you feel like you're in a weaker, wandering state, or if you feel like you just really want to ask God to give you a heart like his, but there'll be a few of us over in the corner to pray for you. And we do this just about every week that we really want you to be able to encounter God and think about life outside these doors. So if you would like, please let us enter in and pray for you before you leave today. Let's pray together. God, I just think that's the kind of God I want to follow. Um, that you are the initiator of relationship that you model a heart that is passionate and personal, that you know our name and you know our stories and you know the parts of our stories that we just don't even have the bravery to speak because it hurts. Thank you that you enter into those places. And yeah, I pray for all of us that we would experience your love in those places in such a radical way that we can't help but be transformed in a way where we display that to others. So we believe you do that kind of transforming work, and we trust that you'll do it even in us today. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.